So as we read, let me go ahead and, uh, as we sang, excuse me, let me go ahead and read really just the first verse of, uh, now nah, let me read verses 1 and 2. A Psalm of David, Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. So basically what that teaches us real quickly, that is a good foundation for us this evening, as you'll see in some of the articles I go over with you related to tithing, everything is God's. God owns everything. It's already his. And we need to remember that whatever we have, we are stewards. And uh, as Fernand and I sometimes talk about, we want to remember that includes our children. We are stewards of our children. They are our children, but they're ultimately God's children. So everything, we need to remember when we are a steward of resources God is lending to us, that affects how we think about what we give to him, what we give back to him, including, as we'll talk about tonight, our money. And um, I know they say that you shouldn't talk about religion and politics in mixed groups, so of course, how can you not, especially here? I would think that the idea that you have to tell people what to do with their money is almost taboo. And I know some, I've heard some ministers never want to preach or teach about it, but we have to teach the whole counsel of God. And it seems to me that this is a, a good place to talk about tithing. You know, as it relates to worship and offerings, you know, we have boxes on our walls. We don't pass a plate. Um, but this idea that we would be giving unto the Lord of our resources, okay? And um, so here's what I want to do tonight. What I require for you who are taking the class formally is to read two articles that are online, and I send you a link, and I mention them in the, uh, you know, I always tell you what to read for next time. Admittedly, it's been a little while because I've had a lot of extra supplements. Uh, let me remind you, we're on Chapter 21 of the Confession of Faith. Um, did you get your folder, Fanana? Oh, Abe, can you bring Mommy her folder, please? Um, we're on Chapter 21 of the Confession of Faith on religious worship and the Sabbath day. And what I decided to do was have a two-week supplemental uh, teaching why we sing psalms exclusively and then without instruments, a cappella. And we've had a few uh, delays, such as presbytery, so it's been kind of stretched out on this chapter, sometimes just because we couldn't meet. And I've just, I, I haven't actually taught in the class on tithing before. I just have some required readings. And again, you know, anything people have questions about, we go over. But, uh, you know, being a little more thorough with this class because we haven't done it in a little while and it's a pretty, pretty big class as it is. Um, in terms of the materials. So, um, and because we're putting it on sermon audio for the first time, I'm trying to be a little more thorough about things people might ask. I feel like I'm preaching to the choir. I don't feel like I really need to teach you about tithing. But of course, it's always helpful for us to remember why we do what we do according to the scriptures and what scriptures we would point to for these things for our own benefit, but also when we would witness to others, uh, maybe new disciples or those who may object. And actually, uh, what I'm going to do is read through an article with you, I should say a letter, a document, that the elders put together a few years ago in response to someone greatly objecting to this. I'll tell you a little bit more about it when we get to it. But what I'd like to do first is I'm going to go through the other two articles I ask you to read, uh, if you're taking it formally, and these are on our website along with some others on tithing. I'm going to highlight a few things. I'm going to go to a few scriptures. I think as I do that, and then I go to our article that's kind of honing in on something, I think that'll be a fairly nice, uh, full, well-rounded study on tithing. Uh, I've already preached on it at least three times, and you'll see at the end of the article I give you that we wrote, uh, you'll see 
a reminder of those titles and links on Sermon Audio. So, you know, we've had it. It comes up in the scriptures. The first thing I'm going to go over with you, and if you don't have a copy of it, we do have internet access here. You, if you want to, feel free to look it up. It's called Will Man Rob God? It's on Ligonier.org by R.C. Sproul. Don't feel like you have to follow along. I'm only going to highlight a few things of it. But uh, I'm going to read that first. And then I'm going to read something by J.J. Lim, The Christian Privilege and Duty of Tithing. I'm only going to read a few things out of it. And we'll go to a few scriptures they cite. And then I'll read you our full thing called Tithing is Not Typical. And I'll explain the play on words there. Okay. So first, Will Man Rob God by R.C. Sproul. And if you'd open your Bibles with me to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. You know, there's a, uh, stay with us here. This is a really uh, great scripture that challenges not tithing, but it's also a really great scripture that encourages tithing. Uh, you know, so it kind of deals with it negatively and positively. Of course, uh, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, right before the New Testament. And I say that because I had to remind myself quickly to remember where to find it. <laughs> kind of happens. Uh, so Malachi 3, we're going to look at verses 8 through 10, but first we're going to look at verse 8. And again, uh, R.C. Sproul's article is called Will Man Rob God? It's from Ligonier.org. And he's particularly basing his article on this scripture. So let's, let's take a look. Malachi 3, verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. I'm going to not repeat myself for sake of time, and I'm not going to end up saying things that his article is going to say. I'm going to try to stick to my notes and move through what he says about this, okay? But uh, if you want to have an important text about tithing, this would be a good one to star. This would be a good one to jot down, Malachi 3, 8 to 10. In the first verse, verse 8, he's saying, you're robbing me. How are we robbing you? By not giving me your tithes, okay? So he says, will man rob God? God announces in Malachi 3, verse 8, that to withhold the full measure of the tithe that he requires from his people is to be guilty of robbing God himself. Because of this, he pronounces a curse upon the whole nation and commands them afresh to bring to him all of the tithe. So look at verses 9 and 10. Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. So he says, the reason you're going to experience a curse is because you're robbing me. How are we robbing you? You're not paying your tithe to the church, to me. But then he says, but if you will give your tithe, I'm going to bless you. You try to outgive me. You know, well, he's going to talk about this. Let me keep to the notes. But there's that, there's that common sense of things. You can't outgive God. And that's what he says. He says, test me. Go ahead. Test me. See what happens. If you do it, Look how much I'm going to bless you. Okay? Okay, down, well, if you're not following, if you are, a couple paragraphs down, he says this. This This is really amazing. He says, I read an article that gave an astonishing statistic. Of all the people in America who identify themselves as evangelical Christians, 
only 4% of them return a tithe to God. Only 4% of evangelical Christians tithe. I want to challenge you to think about that related to our text about a nation. And maybe we're trying to force our nation to have blessings financially completely wrongly. I'll say more about that in a moment. He says, if that statistic is accurate, it means that 96% of professing evangelical Christians regularly, systematically, habitually, and impenitently rob God of what belongs to him. It also means that 96% of us are, for this reason, exposing ourselves to a divine curse upon our lives. Whether this percentage is accurate, one thing is certain. It is clear that the overwhelming majority of professing evangelical Christians do not tithe. Which is to say another way, according to our scripture, the overwhelming majority of evangelical Christians in America are robbing God every week. You think about other scriptures, he says, look, your houses are amazing. Look at my house left destitute. And I think we could look around at most people in our country complaining about this or that and, you know, trying to force things through politics. Remember what we looked at in our recent sermons and wondering why we continue to experience bad things and the nation going the wrong way and things more difficult. Well, why would we think God would bless us when we rob him? He says he'll curse us for that. As a nation, a whole bunch of people demanding this is a Christian nation, and yet we rob God. Why would we think we deserve his blessing? In fact, we deserve even more of his curse if we claim to be his people, robbing our own father. Can you imagine going in and stealing money out of your own father, your mother's purse or pocketbook or wallet? A little bit more in the article. R.C. Sproul, nowhere in the New Testament does it teach us that the principle of the tithe has been abrogated. I was a little embarrassed. I forgot what that word meant because I didn't get to study all the way before my presbytery exam. And uh, I, I needed to be reminded. And then I'm like, oh, no, no, of course I agree. Related to some things with chapter 19 in the law. Abrogated means done away with. Fulfilled and therefore done away with. So a lot of people try to say that tithing is abrogated. And we're going to deal with that particularly tonight in the article our church wrote. Meaning tithing no longer applies. That's Old Testament. You don't have to do that anymore. I mean, do we... Well, let me hold off. I'll I'll get to some things in a moment. (laughs) Uh, Let me read a little more from R.C. Sproul. Will a man rob God? Uh, The starting point of Christian giving is the tithe. The starting point is the tithe. The tithe is not an ideal that only a few people reach, but rather should be the base minimum from which we progress. By the way, 10% is not everything they gave in the Old Testament. We'll get to that with J.J. Lim's article. It's more than that. R.C. Sproul, one of the earliest turn-of-the-second-century extra-biblical documents that survives to this day is the book of the Didache. I I think I'm saying that right. The Didache, uh, this was a very early church Christian document about uh, practical instruction for Christian living. In the Didache, the principle of the giving of the first fruits of the tithe, which means 10%, is mentioned as a basic responsibility for every Christian. So early, one of the early Christian doctrines, the first doctrine, first documents, I should say, after the Bible, early church was says one of the primary duties, one of the expected duties of a Christian is tithing. Right? They didn't see it as Old Testament. Okay. 
He says this, let the thief no longer steal. R.C. Sproul's quoting Ephesians 2.28. Let the thief no longer steal. And he says, he makes this implication. If we have been guilty of stealing from God in the past by withholding our tithe from him, that behavior must cease immediately and give way to a resolution to begin tithing at once, no matter what it costs. He says this, one of the sad realities of failure to tithe is that in so doing, we not only are guilty of robbing God, but we also rob ourselves of the joy of giving and of the blessing that follow from it. He says, frequently I hear tithers. People that tithe 10%, usually those are the ones that are giving extra things, right, also. He says, I hear tithers often say this, quote, people who don't tithe just don't know what they're missing. It's a cliche and a truism that you can't outgive God. Malachi 3, verse 10. Let's, I already closed my Bible, but let's look at that again. I meant to keep it open. Uh, again, end of your Old Testament. Why don't I go ahead just, just to remember, let's read verses 8 and 9 to review what we've talked about, but then let's be encouraged by verse 10. It's very similar to Isaiah 53, 54, is it? No, 50, 58, excuse me, 13 and 14, that if you honor my Sabbath, you don't do what you want to do, but you honor my Sabbath, which is a tithe of the week, a tithe of your time. He says, I will bless you. Right? A lot with all kinds of things. Um, similarly here, there's a does it say, if you honor me tithing, not only your money, but in this, not only your time with the Lord's Day, but your money in terms of giving the 10%, I'm going to bless you. But notice first, uh, verse 8, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But ye say, wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. He says, you're not even going to be able, you will not be able to keep all this stuff. You'll just give more than tithe because you won't be able to keep hold of it all. Now, I would argue, you know, we're not teaching the prosperity gospel, and I would argue there's ways the Lord blesses us that may or may not be monetary in return. Um, but notice this. I'll take care of you. I'll give you more than you can imagine. And faithful tithers know that's always true. Doesn't mean we don't struggle. Doesn't mean we're not tempted maybe not to tithe something because a special thing comes in or this or that. But we remember this promise. And so then there's a question to ask you all. Ask any Christian. If God says, if you tithe, I will bless you more than you can imagine in return. And we still choose not to? What is that but to call God a liar as well as rob from him? What is that but a lack of faith? Now, frankly, a lot of people won't honor the Lord's Day. Why? Because they want to work, because they need the money. Same thing. I won't trust you, God, with my time. I won't trust you with my tithe. And they never really want to recognize how unhappy they are and how much they struggle in ways tithers don't. They don't know what they're missing, as R.C. Sproul says. Okay. Now I'm going to go on to the next article before we get into the one by our church. This one is the other one I asked you to read, uh, and these are on our website. Uh, the Christian Privilege and Duty of Tithing. This is J.J. Lim from uh, Pilgrim Covenant Church in Singapore. 
They are so similar to us, as you know. Get close friends with EPC Australia. As you, as you remember, uh, he was here with his family a number of years ago and preached for us. Actually, I'm glad I read Psalm 24 and we sang it because he preached out of Psalm 24. And I reference it so often. I, I learned so much of it. It's a wonderful, wonderful how he showed us Christ in there in, in a way that I didn't fully understand or recognize. Um, I encourage you to think about going back and listening to him on our sermon audio page. So this is his article on tithing, Christian tithing. Um, he goes on to talk about, he opens up saying, you know, I see so many churches doing all these fundraisers. All these different things that, I mean, we don't actually see anything in the Bible to tell us we should necessarily be doing that. He's not necessarily arguing against it, but he's saying, you know, with all these fundraisers, a lot of times things we do to try money, raise money from the world also, right? And he's kind of concerned about that. I'm not going to read everything he says about that, but I do want to read some things he shares as he brings it into the idea that the church the people of God should take care of their church and the ministering of the church, not the world. And he'll get into tithing and, and giving because of that. So he says, the Lord's instruction in Exodus 25 and Zerubbabel's prohibition in Ezra chapter 4 gives us the two major principles of fundraising in the church. Firstly, the funds must come from willing hearts, constrained to give the cause and to give without any props or enticement. It's got to come from the church. There's been times when we've been encouraged to think about having an antenna, a tower for cell phones. We've always decided not to take that risk um, and trust the Lord to provide. Um, I think, as you'll see, he gives disclaimers. It's not necessarily wrong to do certain things, but we should be thinking about running our church by our making it happen. How, you know, we go to the Y. How does, how does the Y operate? Well, they have membership fees. How you, would we expect them to keep it open without that? <laughs> you know, any other place, we wouldn't, that, that wouldn't make any sense to think that they're supposed to just do it at their own expense and their own sacrifice, and we just come in and take advantage of it, right? Somehow at the church, people have no problem with that, often. But let me go on to, to quote J.J. Lim. Anything collected from, for any reason other than devotion to God would be tainted with impure motives and hence unsuitable for the work of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. Secondly, it is clear uh, that the support should come... Oh, excuse me, let me read. Uh, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. I would argue um, in that part, I think it's talking more about special gifts, not so much the 10% tithe. But God loves a cheerful giver. It should be, we should be happy to do it. It shouldn't be something we're offering begrudgingly. Just as God's, you know, we learn from the scriptures, guided by the catechisms, we shouldn't be doing the Sabbath. Oh, I wish I didn't have to do this. No, we should be doing it with joy and happiness. Um, secondly, it's clear that the support of the church should come from the people of God, not unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 6, 14. What communion hath light with darkness, righteousness with unrighteousness? We don't want dirty money, right? I mean, I think, uh, I think we need to be thinking about, um, you know, we don't really probably want to be doing our, well, I think I'll hold off, but the money needs to be coming from cheerful Christians for their own church, right? Okay. He says this, J.J. Lim, the scripture sanctions, excuse me, that the scripture sanctions, nay, commands that the work of the Lord must be primarily supported by tithes and free will offerings from God's people. That's what we should recognize the scriptures require. He says, now, an offering refers either to the act of giving or to what is given unto the Lord, whether spontaneously or planned. An offering is something we might say we're going to take up an offering for a deacon's fund, we're going to get up an offering for a certain missionary, you know, a special offering. 
But a tithe simply means a tenth. And so, customarily, tithing refers to the systematic giving of a tenth of one's substance or income unto the Lord, whether it's income from working or income from giving, whatever the Lord sends to us and gives to us. We give back to him 10% as a way of recognizing it's from him and worshiping him. Uh, And we do that to the church to maintain the ministry of the church and the gospel. Tithing is frequently viewed not only as draconian, that means really bad and dictatorship, you know, uh, and contrary to the principle of uh, uncompelled giving, but as a Jewish practice that is completely abrogated in the gospel dispensation. So again, a lot of people try to say, oh, tithing, giving 10% is, that's Old Testament, we're not required as Christians anymore although churches still have their expenses and ministers still have to feed their children, right? But um, uh, they seem to want to say that's Old Testament. We don't have to give to the church anymore, 10%. I guess we don't have to give anything if we don't want to, right? We're happy to take. I'll tell you what, though. The people demand they don't have to give are very happy to take. And they're usually the one that are demanding the most of the minister's time, I guarantee it. Don't worry if some of you like to ask a lot of questions and things in the Bible. And the minister loves to do that. The kinds of things they're demanding of are usually not the Bible, let me tell you. <laughs> okay? Um, they, want their, they want their personal psychologist and their personal priest. And have their mass in their home and all of the ministry in their couch. And they almost never come to church. Okay? Um, it's, it's really interesting, but they'll all, always want to argue that, oh, this is Old Testament, we don't have to do this anymore. That's what our article's mostly going to focus on, so I'm going to, I'm going to try to skip, or skip through what he's saying. He says, uh, we must insist that the practice of tithing was not instituted by Moses, and so it is not abrogated completely with the ceremonial system. When someone tries to argue that tithing or something else no longer applies in the New Testament, they're going to say that was part of the ceremonial law, the worship of the the temple and the tabernacle and the priestly things that are shadows of Christ's coming, or the judicial law, uh, the Israel as a state and church all as one, and you know the, some things don't apply now in specifics, but the moral equity does. And so they're saying tithing was part of those two systems with Israel. Israel is now fulfilled in Christ. We don't have to do any of that stuff. Uh, I would argue, well, there's a lot of laws there, uh, such as we just read recently in Exodus about you know, not enslaving people. Uh, there's a lot of laws about still not raping women and not having uh, incest. I think those things are still pretty applicable, right? <laughs> you know, and they are said to be in the New Testament. Uh, a lot of things there, especially if, you know, even sometimes specifically, are still applicable in the New Testament. Back to J.J. Lim. We read the first clear reference of tithing in Genesis 14, verse 20, where Abraham gave tithes of all to Melchizedek, king of Salem. The writer of Hebrews, referring to this incident, suggests that Melchizedek, also mentioned in Psalm 100, verse 4, the most quoted Old Testament scripture in the New Testament to prove Christ. Uh, uh, Melchizedek was a type of Christ and argues that the writer of Hebrews is talking about the Bible. He argues because Abraham paid tithes to him even before Levi was born. And so Abraham tithed on behalf of Levi and his descendants that the Melchizedek priesthood is of a higher order than that of the Levitical or Aaronic priesthood, Hebrews 7, 1 to 10. The point is, Hebrews says that Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, which was a type of Christ, a figure of Christ. This is way before the Levitical priesthood ceremonial system ever came around. This is way before Moses and the nation of Israel. And Abraham was tithing to Melchizedek, who some people say he was Christ. I argue he was a type of Christ. But that's way before the ceremonial judicial system. 
just as the Sabbath was a creation ordinance in Genesis, right? Okay. But I also point out, I kind of put a little parenthetical note here. Turn with me to, well, actually, I'll read it for you. I have it in my notes. Turn there if you want, but just to save time. I won't. I'll read it in my notes. Uh, Genesis 28, verse 22. Jacob gives this example, quote, And this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. So Jacob, Genesis 28, verse 22, following the example of Abraham, way before Moses, way before the ceremonial judicial system in the nation of Israel. Jacob says, I will give you a tenth of everything you've given to me, God. Why is he saying that? He's so thankful to be coming back to the promised land that God has not gotten rid of him and is so merciful to him. Jacob says elsewhere, I'm not worthy of the least of all your mercies, God. And he's happy to give back. I'm going to give 10% back to you. I'm going to give a tithe, just like my father Abraham, to Melchizedek. This is, this is the example in scripture of the patriarchs well before Moses and the nation of Israel. So the point of it is, you can't talk about it being abrogated with Israel being fulfilled with Christ because it was before that. Okay? Uh, back to J.J. Lim. What is the principle of tithing? It is really the principle of stewardship. It is the principle that all we have belongs to God, who has planted them under our stewardship, Psalm 24. And therefore, we are always to return a portion of our substance to him as part of our privilege of worship and service. And he quotes 1 Chronicles 29, 14, Of thine own have we given thee. He also references Luke 21, verses 3 to 4, where the Pharisees are giving all kinds of money. The, the widow gives out of her poverty, but she gives so much, all she has. And Jesus points to that as a good example of being a Christian in his kingdom. What is she doing? She is giving to God at the temple. She is giving of all she has. And she doesn't think it's anything, but Jesus says it's way more than these rich guys where it doesn't cost them anything. J.J. Lim seems to think that they're also tithing. I kind of suspect maybe they weren't actually giving 10%, but it looked like a lot because it was a lot more than she gave, but she gave of all she had, you see. So Jesus highlights this woman. Why? Because of what she gave to the ministry, gave to the church. Uh, Luke 21, 3 to 4. He says this, Instead of complaining that tithing is legalism, the principle of tithing teaches us that we should rather consider retaining only what is necessary for our own subsistence and returning the rest to the Lord. There's been some interesting books I've read in working in development for the seminary and fundraising. But you know, folks who are the, some, some who are able to make the big gifts to the ministry, big gifts to, you know, um, the seminary and other parachurch ministry, so to speak, at least in terms of my experience, my studying and reading these things, they are usually the ones you never know that they're millionaires because they don't live extravagantly. And I've been in their homes, and you wouldn't think. But they don't waste their money on lots of things. They give it constantly to the church. They give it to the ministries of the church, and they sacrifice to do it. One man in particular, I always remember, one of the biggest supporters of the seminary was a farmer in Kansas. And you know farmers... Never know what's going to happen, right? And um, some of these folks, when they're particularly wealthy, they have determined how much they really need to live on and they give all of the rest away to the church and charity because they know they don't need it. And rather than store it up, and you even see secular people do this, right? 
Bill Gates and others, uh, I'm trying to forget the other fellow's name, but really, really wealthy men, they're actually giving most of it away because they realize, I don't need all this. And whether or not some of the things they give it to are things we would, we would support, I think some of them are, and we certainly can at least applaud, that ought to be the attitude of Christians. If I don't need it, I'm going to give it to the work of the ministry. I'm not going to watch this missionary suffering with almost nothing when I could be supporting that. Or I'm not going to wait for that church to be planted over 10 years when I could help it happen tomorrow if we could just get a minister. Pray for laborers. The harvest is big. We need more laborers, right? People are going to support bringing in more ministers to the ministry. Okay. I'm getting off my notes. Let me try to get back on my notes so I don't keep you too long. But what about the 10% recommended in the Old Testament? Back to J.J. Lim. May I suggest that a, this is a minimal recommended proportion necessarily imposed for the enforcement of the civil laws pertaining tithing under the Old Economy, the Old Testament. Anyone who failed to return a tenth was considered to have robbed God. Malachi 3, 9-10, that's what we looked at. Even so, we must realize that the Israelites did not just give 10%. People always object to giving 10%. They gave more than 10%. That was part of their tithing. In fact, he says, they actually gave two tithes. The first tithe was given to the Levites who dwelt with them and taught them the law. Numbers 18.24, Deuteronomy 14.27. The first tithe was to support the ministers. The second tithe was brought to the temple or tabernacle, Deuteronomy 14, 22 to 26. In addition to that, any sin offering and free will offerings were taken from what remained after those two tithes. They actually did more than 10% in the Old Testament economy. Now remember, it was a church-state situation too. We're going to talk about that in the next article. He goes on to say, As the Lord has prospered us, 1 Corinthians 6, 2, we ought to purpose in our hearts to give and to give bountifully, cheerfully, and not grudgingly. Quote, for God loveth a cheerful giver. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 to 7. Think of it this way. Isaac's birthday is coming up on Saturday. I just saw him and mommy giving the lovey-dovey eyes to each other, which is nice. But think about this, Isaac's birthday. We come with presents to him. And we hope that he's a happy receiver. He's going like this already. Oh, yeah, he's giving, I got, he gave me his list today. I said, give me his list. But uh, think about this. Maybe he does receive it happily. That's what you hope to see, right? We talked Sunday, Lord's Day evening, about being so thankful to the Lord. But what if we gave it begrudgingly to him? What if we showed up, we didn't really wrap him, you know, and... I have a funny story about when we don't have time to wrap our presents. We got this idea from one of the kids, some, something, I forget it was. We have the workers' goggles, and we put wrapping paper on them, and, okay, put your goggles on, the presents wrapped, take it off. Okay, it's unwrapped. <laughs> that was pretty fun. I like it, actually. I'm a bad rapper. My dad, and Fernanda's amazing at rapping. She should be working for Macy's or something. But um, anyhow, you know, you try to come with the, pay, the presents wrapped. What if we didn't wrap them? What if we actually just threw them in? Here you go. <laughs> And we didn't even want to sit and watch them wrap, open them with taking pictures and yay. So, you know, hope you enjoy them. I got to get back to work. I got to do this. And, you know, I hope, I hope you're grateful because it sure was a pain in the neck to have to go out and look for presents for you this week. Do you think that he would enjoy the presents? Don't answer, Isaac. <laughs> He'd probably be like, I'll still enjoy them. No, but I'm pretty sure it would make you sad if daddy just threw the present at you and walked out the room. Don't you think? He's like, muscle manus. No, come on. Yeah, well, I'm not going to test you on Saturday. But if you get the idea, like if we give to God that way, whether it's our time on the Sabbath or our tithing, if we even do it according to the right percentage, but we do it, oh, I wish I didn't have to do that. 
You think he's going to be pleased with that? We need to give it cheerfully. Thank you, God. Everything's from you. I happily give back this, this measly 10% to show my thanksgiving and for the work of your ministry. Okay. Um, uh, Paul suggests, back to J.J. Lim, that we are to give by setting aside a sum each week, presumably to be collected together when the congregation is assembled each Lord's Day. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. And what a tremendous privilege it is to give, for Paul reminds us that when we do so, we participate in the work of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9, 14 and 23, 2 Corinthians 9, 8, and I couldn't help but write down the book of Philippians. Yes, Abraham. And in response, sorry. Yeah, in response, yeah. In response to Isaac. Yeah, my question to Isaac. That, yeah. It's, that's why sometimes when it's not a very good present, that's why we always say it's a Right. Abraham says if it's a present we may or may not have particularly wanted, uh, it's the thought that counts. We know the person's trying to bless us, right? Okay. And may have limitations on what they can bless us with. It's the thought that counts. Amen. That's exactly right. We give what God says, but also that we give it with the right thought, the right attitude. Very good. But of course, I couldn't help but think of Philippians. Remember what we've been learning in Philippians? Paul's praising the Philippians out of your poverty. You keep supporting me even when other churches couldn't. So much of this ministry we're talking about, as I write to you in chains in prison, we're rejoicing over the advancement of the gospel, even at my suffering and sacrifice. And I rejoice in you because you've been there with me. You're sending support to me now through uh, Paphroditus, right? And, uh, you know, he commends them many times for their giving to the work of the church. He says, you have the blessing of knowing that you are participating in the kingdom work. And guys, if we're not a, guys and gals, uh, it's kind of like y'all means everybody. <laughs> guys, it tends to mean everybody. Oh, yeah, Josh, yeah. Didn't Acts, and correct me if I'm wrong, Church of Acts and its infancy, they were giving everything they had. Well, it's a good question. Some people would try to point to that and, and teach communism, and I know that's not what you're doing. It's voluntary. They were giving, yeah, so I many things. Yeah, that, that's right. At the beginning of the New Testament church in Acts, they were giving of all they had to one another, right? And I think beyond you know, tithing to the work of the church, they were taking care of each other. Yeah, that's, that's very good. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Thank you, Josh. Yeah. And, and then I am thinking of Philippians as well, like just praising the opportunity to minister. And this is what I want to challenge y'all, all y'all. I've understood in Texas, it's all y'all to mean everyone. Y'all is just singular in Texas. I've told you that before. <laughs> it's yins if you're in Pittsburgh. All you guys, gals, everyone. If you don't want to give to the work of the church, where are you with Jesus? Because his church is his body. If you're not interested in seeing the kingdom advance with the gospel and reaching people because you're more interested in your toys, and we're not just talking, I'm actually not actually addressing girls and boys when I say that right now. How much do we really care about Jesus and the advancement of his kingdom? And how much are we, are we actually still falling for the lusts of the world, right, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. This isn't to say you can't have a new car. This isn't to say you can't have a certain kind of house. But if we don't really need certain things and we're sacrificing, if, if we're not able to give, if we're sacrificing our tithing or cheerful giving or supporting of others, as Josh says, you know, sometimes anonymously, just somebody, you know, we've supported others and we've been supported like this. Sometimes money shows up in an envelope just at the right time, just what you needed, you know. Uh, if we're not doing those things to help one another, then who are we really? Are we children of God? Are we brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we care about the ministry being able to, to survive and maybe even grow? Yeah. Uh, <coughs> Mr. Ren. Please. Here, but 
<coughs> when Paul was instructing, and I think the Philippians, uh -huh. uh, and he says, not that I desire a gift, but that that you would be blessed. In yes. Yeah, Paul actually says, it's not so much the gift is for me, but you're going to be blessed as the church, giving this to the other churches. Yeah, thank you. He's recognizing the blessing is yours. Okay. Okay, guys, if we go late, it's your fault. No, but this, this is great. This is great. I love this. More of this in class, okay? But that makes me think of, what does Paul say in Acts, quoting Jesus? It is better to give than to receive. Do we believe Jesus? We could ask that question just like Malachi 3.10. Do we believe God's going to bless us? It's better to give than to receive. I love how when we have opportunities sometimes to go out and bring a cake or flowers to someone, minister to someone, Fernando always says, I just feel so blessed. I feel like I'm getting the blessing more than the others. And that's the thing. It's such a joy and a blessing to serve others. Okay. Uh, beloved, are you faithful? This is J.J. Lim to close his article. Are you faithfully exercising the stewardship of the riches that God has apportioned to you? Forget not your duty of stewardship. See 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19. I'd like to turn to that scripture with you, and then we'll be done with his article. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. First Timothy 6, verses 17 to 19, and I'm pretty sure I'm in the right place. Sometimes I go to the wrong book, especially Wednesday nights, but I'm trying not to do that today. Verses 17 to 19. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. Okay. Uh, then he references Matthew three verse, or excuse me, Malachi three verse ten, and he challenges us again. You can't outgive God. Don't rob God. See if you can outgive Him. You won't be able to. Okay. Now what I'm going to go through to at this point is what I passed out to you guys. I should say distributed to you guys. And the reason I'm reading through this and highlighting things is I know it's hard to make time to read some of these things, and I think well this will be our opportunity to go through together for membership class highlight some things and, um, and, you know, get reminded. So I'm reading you an article that our elders put together quite a few years ago. We actually had a young man who wanted to join our church, was really diehard, visited a few times, going through the member classship class online, older version of it. And, and then when we met with them, when he visited, it was like a whole different person. It was really odd. He was very combative about things like Presbyterian church governments. Like, I thought you, I mean, all the people he listens to like us, like, why would you even be questioning this? But he also started to combat the idea of tithing. He was fighting us, and we didn't bring it up. It was just, you know, when he did, we said, well, I don't think, we don't think you're right about that, you know. Incidentally, we were treating him to breakfast at Denny's. <laughs> I don't think he ever said thank you either, by the way. But um, so this article developed just trying to answer that objection thoroughly, okay? Especially because his objection is that's Old Testament Ironically, he was mostly a theonomist. That's what's hilarious about it, too. Just like theonomists often don't care about honoring the Lord's Day. I always bring that up to them. It's, so, it's just so inconsistent. <laughs> but um, uh, tithing is not typical. Now, I'm playing with the word. 
It's not typical in the sense of it's not a type that's fulfilled in the New Testament goes away. It is typical. It should be a typical practice, right? But when I'm talking about this, uh, I'm saying giving 10% of our income to Christ is not expired with the theocracy's judicial law. Okay, and this is reflecting our work as a session. I'm mostly just going to read, read through it and look at the scriptures with you. With the title for this brief treatise, uh, excuse me, while the title for this brief treatise may seem to focus on the fact that tithing is lamentably an atypical practice in American Christianity, it actually addresses a false hermeneutic and polemic, seeking to justify not being expected to tithe in church by those who conveniently place tithing in the category of an Old Testament type that is a symbolic prefiguration of something to do with Christ that is now expired within the work of his New Testament incarnation. For more on scriptural types, study the discipline of typology by such as Patrick Fairbairn. He has a wonderful book on that, and you can read it online for free if you find it digitally. Um, I deal with typology a lot in chapter 7 of our study, Confession of Faith, chapter 7, related to the covenant and what Adam could have earned in relation to Christ in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, I believe. Uh, often the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 19, verse 4, is presumptuously, quote, presumptuously quoted to falsely label the practice of tithing, that is, giving at least 10% of one's gross income to one's church, as something that was part of the body politic of the typological theocracy of Israel, and so was an Old Testament taxing of God's people as a nation that no longer applies to God's people as a New Testament church. Now notice the word taxing. They like to use that. Some of the articles given to us to try to prove we're wrong. Tax, tax, tax. Ooh, bad word. You know, there's a lot of people who go with this who also want to say the government has no right to tax, right? It's not uncommon to hear that. And we didn't shy away from that word taxing, by the way. Notice through the article because they almost want to make you feel guilty. Oh, you're taxing your people. But that was Old Testament uh, judicial laws for the nation. It isn't something we do to our people now. Next paragraph. Before going further, let the author, a minister, that is myself, state that he and his family tithe to our church and employer, no matter what our economic situation, cheerfully seeing it as both our Christian obligation and opportunity. In addition, we gladly join in with the special offerings. We also pay our state and federal taxes, perhaps not as cheerfully, but certainly not begrudgingly. For civil magistrates also are God's ministers, still to be supported by God's people in the New Testament. It's just that the civil magistrate in the New Testament is not combined in this theocracy like the old. They're split up, but they're still the civil government, and we're going to make the point, we're not afraid of using the word taxes related to tithe in a sense. It doesn't have to be thought of as bad, um, because the church is now separated from the government, but you recognize, there, remember, there were two tithes. Framing the discussion about the Old Testament tithe as simply a national judicial case law quote-unquote tax, often the opposition's favored rhetorical term during Israel's existence as a theocracy is an immediate sleight-of-hand distractionary tactic. But even if one were to refer to tithing as a church quote-unquote tax in the New Testament, is it really such a dirty word? Perhaps calling tithing taxation for proper representation better purports its essential ecclesiastical necessity. Israelites paid taxes to both church and state as one whole. 
Christians are still required to pay taxes unto Caesar in the New Testament per Romans 13, verse 7. Now let's turn there. Let's turn to Romans 13, verse 7, because i got to tell you, there's people who want to play around with Christianity and be in this kind of conservative world of America, and they don't want to pay taxes. There are some who actually refuse. And I'm sorry, it's not biblical. Romans 13, verse 7, which, by the way, they love to make exceptions with this chapter as well. Romans 13, verse 7. Render, therefore, to all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due. Custom to whom custom is due. Uh, custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Now, there are other scriptures that are even more specific about that. I haven't written them down here. I want to say Peter. But render, in that context, he's talking about the civil government. You give to those, do what is due to them. You can think of Jesus. We've got to pay the temple tax. Go get the fish. There's a coin in his mouth. Yes, Abraham. Yeah, I want to be careful not to go there now, but that's where we went to to determine that you know the government has a sphere of authority that overlaps with the church, yes. But particularly what we want to focus on there at the moment is, is that the government does have a right. It is a minister of God. Hold on, Isaac, please. And it is, um, I'm turning back there because I forgot to look at something. And it is uh, their right to expect to have funds to do their job, right? They can't do their job. They can't employ policemen and military to protect us, and especially we appreciate if they come in to help us after something help like happened in Orange County this week, right? They can't do the job if they can't pay them. They can't hire people to do the job if they can't pay the money. Where's the money come from? It's got to come from the people. Yes, Isaac, what was your question? What if, what if the people don't have the money to give? Well, then they don't have any, if they don't have any income, then they can't pay a tithe or a tax. It has to, it's on income, right? That's a good question. Uh, Matthew chapter 21, verse 21. Still thinking about the civil government, which is now separated from the church in the New Testament, but the tithing to the civil government still remains. Matthew 22, verse 21. They say unto him, Caesar's. They said, who's this coin? And they're trying to get him to say, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar, the tribute money? And he says, render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Okay? Um, I'm going to be back to my notes here, bottom of page one of the special handout. The theocracy is gone, but society's civic and religious spheres remain for Christians, as does the precept for their funding each institution's functions. It's just that they're not all one in the nation of Israel anymore. Would God, and I highlight this to you, would God really require still supporting the state while no longer caring for the state of affairs of Christ's church. Is her king less worthy of her citizens' basic funding of his government than is the funding of the governments of this world? We still give our taxes. We recognize the Bible says this. We give it to the, to the leaders of this world. But King Jesus? I mean, they showed up when he was a baby with gifts. But we don't have to. It wouldn't be our heart to do so. Serious, scriptural Christians never argue that the New Testament does not teach taxing to the civil government as part of their law-abiding citizen obligations to maintain its sphere and sword ministering on behalf of God, though some arguing against tithing sound suspiciously like others rejecting the legitimacy of a federal tax while forgetting how Nero in the days of Paul the Apostles' messianic epistles was not less severe than King George in the days of Paul. 
Paul Revere's massacre propaganda. That last line is based on my trip to Boston years ago, attending a historical teaching of what happened. I throw it out there. You can look at it if you're interested. I'm on the top of page two, if you're following along, top of page two. How does it follow that tithing, call it taxing, to maintain the church's governmental sphere and sword no longer applies? Such hypocritical avarice is too often cloaked in sheep's wool. While driving the sword deeper into discerning the heart's thoughts and intents is beyond the scope of this article, I highlight this to you. If one peels back the layers from the smelly anti-tithing onion, one likely finds an anti-authority disdain for official ministry under Christ's rightful administration, administrative rule with a distaste for the Bible's visibly institutional Christianity. I see you nodding your heads because you know it's true. And by the way, the articles that were given to us to try to prove against this exactly speak about that. They don't believe in a formal ministry in the church. Okay, next paragraph, middle of page two. Many scriptures could be leveled against articles intending to prove that tithing was merely a theocratic practice during Israel's judicial case laws that is now expired in Christ and thus no longer binding for today's church. Many scriptures could be pointed to. But this article swings just one side of the Bible's sharp corrective blade toward the opposition's Achilles heel. You know, that idea of the Achilles heel. You take out the Achilles heel, you take out the whole thing, right? First, um, Corinthians 9, verses 1 to 14. If you want to open your Bibles, you can, but I have it here in the notes to follow along with. This is, I think, the main thing to go to to teach against the argument that this is Old Testament and no longer binding. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 to 14. If, if it's not a scripture entirely glossed by agitated Scrooges, its Old Testament texts being applied to New Testament church life certainly are ignored as the answer to their anarchy-like angst. And now I read for you. This scripture, I think, is a, the most strongest one just to go to because it's dealing with so much. 1 Corinthians 9, 1-14, and I read it to here for you, and I give you some things in bold to emphasize some things. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not, yet, are not ye my work in the Lord? If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you. For the seal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. Mine answer to them that do examine me is this. Have we not power to eat and to drink? Have we not power, by the way that word power as we go throughout could be translated authority. Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas? Or I only and Barnabas, have not we power to forbear working? Meaning getting a second job. Who goeth a warfare any time at his own charges? Who planteth a vineyard and eateth not of the fruit thereof? Or who feedeth a flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock? Say I these things as a man, or saith not the law the same also? So now he's going to apply Old Testament laws, and he's showing they're not abrogated. The principle remains. For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth God take care for oxen? Or saith he it altogether for our sakes? Speaking as ministers. For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he that ploweth should plow in hope, 
and that he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? He's basically saying, shouldn't we be able to expect a paycheck to minister the gospel to you, all the work it takes? By the way, I would argue churches that do not believe in paying ministers and don't have formal official ministers, that's their job all the time, it shows in the teaching of those who do their teaching. If others be partakers of this power over you, are not we rather? Nevertheless, we've not used this power, but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Do ye not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? He's talking about the Old Testament. And they which wait on the altar are partakers with the altar. Even so hath the Lord obtained, ordained, excuse me, that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. Boom! In the Old Testament, the ministers lived off the church's tithes. And therefore, it's the same in the New Testament gospel time, he says. God has ordained it to be so. And he uses all these Old Testament scriptures to prove it. That the arguers say, don't apply anymore. I would argue this is like when uh, Arminians don't want to even deal with Romans chapter 9. Because how could they possibly maintain their arguments when Paul answers them all in Romans chapter 9? So they ignore it. Similarly here, they ignore this chapter. Why? Because it answers everything they're arguing. Case closed. <laughs> huh? Yeah, it's convenient. All right, let me, let me finish the notes for you here. It'll go fast. Here, I highlight this part to you. Here, Paul uses two Old Testament Mosaic law references, just as he does in 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18, that we just read together, to argue against the sin of not paying a hired church ministry worker worth his wages via tithing to prove the, quote, general equity of the law, Westminster Confession 19.4, remains for God's people to support God's ministers. In verse 9, he explicitly says he is quoting from the law of Moses, and he's referring to Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. In this case, a mandate given during judicial theocratic times and that it obviously still applies to his contemporary argument. In verses 13 and 14, he alludes to the Old Testament Deuteronomy, excuse me, church's whole ceremonial system of sustenance for her Levitical priests, as expressed in Deuteronomy 18.1 and Numbers 18.21-26.31, to be still clearly expected of today's church. This was by way of tithes. Although modern tithing tends to be stretched out for covering other administrative expenses like buildings and grounds, not likely relevant when Paul wrote this. In 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 to 14, this is our text we're focusing on, and I highlight this to you. So this is the top of page 3 if you're following along, top of page 3. Paul specifically teaches that tithing to the church and state to support the ministry of both spheres of government, now separate remains an obligation of the people. Tithing to the government, civil government, and tithing to the government of the church remains, and primarily to support the work of the minister. His exegetical point is that tithing is required. See the regular, regular use of the word power in the text as derivative from the church's ministry, which is in Greek authoritative, or it is our right. 
Paul says he has chosen to waive his ministerial right, but he goes out of his way with his exception to prove the rule of tithe-supported church ministry, using Old Testament texts given amidst the judicial case laws as still morally binding. It's just that now two checks have to be written, so to speak, one made out to the civil magistrate and the other to the church. Further, much of what is given within the theocratic times are actually enduring moral laws. Matthew Henry writes in his introduction to Leviticus 19, that's important, by the way, for a lot of things, some ceremonial precepts there are in this chapter, but most of them are moral, which is similar to what Jonathan Gill says of the same in his commentary, meaning a lot of this still applies today. In addition, no con- and I highlight this to you, no conscientious Christian argues that Proverbs is now expired. Thus, Proverbs 3, 9 to 10, should be meditated on with quote-unquote first fruits, understood as tithes, per 2 Chronicles 31, 5. For sake of time, I'm not going to take us to those scriptures, but I encourage you to read Proverbs 3. Now let me read that. I won't go to the other one. Proverbs will be an easy one to get to quickly. Psalms, Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 to 10. Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. Notice there. Honor the Lord with your first fruits and you're going to have way more than you can do. Same thing as promised in Malachi 3, verse 10. Wouldn't it be exciting to say, I got all this extra money, who can I bless with it? By the way, when the church has gotten a down payment for our lot last year, we tithed it. And it was so exciting to sit down and say, what ministries are we going to give this to? And we know that we're going to tithe in some way this next when we finish the sale. We feel it's important for the church to do what we're instructing others. Let me give one other disclaimer because I don't know if I mention it here. We don't ask you to show us your paychecks to know what you're making. It's on your honor. But if you're not giving regularly or you're giving at a rate that doesn't seem likely to be tithing, an elder might speak with you. I never know what you're giving. I never want to know as the minister so that as I preach tithing and I'm giving you the message and hammering home these things, you can know I don't know what you make and I never will. I will know if an elder in the session meeting thinks maybe we need to have someone spoken to, but I won't be the one and I won't know what you're making and we'll never know. We're not going to go there and show me your pay stubs. That's not what happens. The point is God knows what you make and God knows whether you're robbing him or not. And we're the messenger. And not only should you not shoot the messenger, you should pay him a fair wage. That's kind of the argument, right? Okay, I want to say this too before I go on. Right now I have a second job. Last year in January we determined I was going to need to make, get a second job to be able to continue to minister. Why is that? It's not because we don't tithe. Our people tithe amazingly, which is why when they didn't have a pastor for 10 years, they were able to be so generous to bring me out here. The house we live in is paid for. My car that I'm still trying to make last as long as possible, the first van we have, uh, with maybe some duct tape and bubble gum, but nonetheless, you know, <laughs> it was a really nice van they first bought for us in cash. Why? Because the church tithed even when there wasn't a minister and therefore have resources. This building and this property, which is worth a lot, is paid for a long time ago. Why? Because people tithe. Faithful tithers. I know I'm preaching to the crowd, but what I want to say is, Paul, one of his other arguments is if you're in the military, does the military have to go get a second job? You think he'd be able to do a good job as a soldier if he's got to go work somewhere else half the time? 
energy, let alone attention. Uh, the farmer, all these other examples, they are allowed, the shepherd, they're allowed, and they're full-time and they're busy. And, and I'm struggling right now to be doing the hours for the second job. Do you want to know what my paycheck was for my second job recently? It was $11.54. You want to know why? Because that's what my ministry gives to me, the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, to give back to the church to help pay for the Wi-Fi. I had $0 in my paycheck for me. And I'm not complaining. I've been extremely busy with the ministry, and I've just wanted to trust. But you know, one thing I thought might be, I was just trusting the Lord. You know what? Hope Protestant Reformed Church gave a, a large check like they did yes last year. And you know what they wanted to support? The pastor. We don't want him to have to work as much for the other job. He should be working full-time for the church. And in their letter supporting us, they go out of their way to point this out. I sent a card to them thanking them. I said, I just want to make sure you understand. They do tithe. They're giving me everything they possibly can. We're small. And I believe in the church and the ministry. And I'm happy to take on a tent maker's ministry. But it does make it difficult to do what you'd like to do. And when you do it anyways, and you have new visitors and lots of pastoral needs, and you're going to hear about some stuff Sunday morning, you have all kinds of things we've got to deal with, they have to be dealt with. They have to be done. Presbytery has to happen. All those things, right? It makes it difficult to give the self full to the ministry. And sometimes uh, I, don't, I have to pay for it by not giving much or any hours to the other job. This is a part-time, uh, excuse me, this is a temporary solution we aim to grow and get out of. And I'm happy to do it. But I do recognize, as you know, it's hard to try to do two jobs. Because I want to do the ministry full time and I want to see this place grow. And I'm always going to defer to the ministry first. You know why? Because when I used to travel the country with my boss, president of the seminary, and some churches we would visit were small and they couldn't afford to pay their pastor full time. Those ministers, I've learned, somebody commented on this. Eventually the second job becomes the main job. And eventually they quit the ministry because they have to provide for their family. And I'm just being careful not to let that happen. My bosses are very understanding. I can go weeks without checking my email. Uh, I often am late on deadlines, and they're very understanding. And they said from the beginning, we do not want to get in the way of the ministry. And it's the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. As you know, it's a wonderful ministry. It's a wonderful overlap. I hope to always be doing a level of work with them, but I hope it to be less as I can give more attention. And frankly, training other ministers, maybe taking on another minister, you know, to do different kinds of outreach and things. So think about what Paul's saying in his other argument that we're not focusing on so much. You know, we don't expect, I mean, the, the military doesn't say, okay, we're hiring you for military, uh, you're full-time in our, but you go ahead and go work another job half-time <laughs> and give us half of your effort. You know, that doesn't happen, right? Because they want the full ability and effort. And I hope you understand I'm not complaining, but I do want to point out that's what Paul's talking about. Nobody else says, I'll work for you for free, right? The people who are arguing this, they're happy to just sort of see a little ministry happen on the weekends and call themselves the minister, although none of them are ordained, they're not in a denomination, yada, yada. They go work all week doing something else. They've never been trained. They have never been trained in any of the things. They have no experience. And people like us, I went to seminary 10 years, and I killed myself at night to make it happen. And I went through 15, 13 of 15 exams to be qualified, to be allowed to be a minister. And then you examined me and tested me. But apparently that's okay for medical doctors and others who operate on our bodies. But in terms of those who would work on our souls with eternal consequences, you know, 
And that's such a significant thing. I'm not complaining to you. You guys take, have you always have taken wonderful care of me. God always provides. You always end up sharing of the extras with our family. I'm not complaining. But I think that's compelling to me at the moment why what's ideal, and I know it's your heart too, is we grow, and then I can focus more on the ministry and not worry about that other paycheck I'm able, able to get sometimes. Okay. True, Paul never uses the word tithe. This might be argued. Paul never uses the word tithe or tithing in 1 Corinthians 9. But this is because it is understood. Just as there is an implicit covenant carryover of the New Testament of marking God's children with its sign and keeping its Sabbath as a sign of being God's people, it's understood. Paul chooses to illustrate this continual moral rule to motivate the righteous reasonableness of, quote, do unto others, the golden rule and move to sympathy those rejecting their responsibility to the church and ministry. Usually they are the same ones who steal the most of the church's resources and the time of her ministers, the New Testament priests, per Romans 15, verse 16. Paul knows the Corinthians know their Christian duty. He wants them to feel the weight of their heartless, hypocritical neglect of it. His summary conclusion in verse 14 is unmistakable. Let me read it. Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. Ministers have a right to live by the gospel work of the church. And this is the norm to expect, which continues from the Old Testament, Paul says. I highlight that section. To frivolously complain, he does not use the word tithe, would be to ignore what that Paul is obviously take, talking about tithing within the context of his theocratic proof texts. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 is teaching the mandatory support of the church by a furtherance of the people's tithe. The Old Testament quote-unquote tax to support the ministry of the church is demonstrated to be a New Testament precept not expired in the expiration of Israel and its body politic amid judicial case laws, just as the Old Testament tax to Israel's civil sphere of life continues today for Christians of one church now living in diverse nation-states. The following quotes on Numbers 18 from notable Reformed commentaries have already made this point more succinctly. First, I share with you John Calvin on Numbers 18. Quote, Paul correctly infers that a subsistence is now no less due to the ministers of the gospel than of old to the priests who waited at the altar. And he cites 1 Corinthians 9.14, our text. Matthew Henry, on Numbers 18, says, And from this plentiful provision here made for the priests, the apostle infers that it is the duty of Christian churches to maintain their ministers. And he cites 1 Corinthians 9, 13-14. And beloved, I thank you. I am done. If you look at page 4, I give you two articles to read, which I already quoted from you from for you tonight. I also point out there's a very good article by A.W. Pink called Tithing. That's on our website as well. I also show you three sermons there on our sermon audio page about tithing as they came up while we preached through the scriptures and preached through the larger catechism. You can look at those and revisit them, search them, listen to those online if you like. Uh, that is it. I thank you for bearing with us a little bit late. I kind of want to have fun and blaming you. There's a lot of great interaction, but I love that I encourage more of that. And thank you for staying. Let us close in prayer. Almighty God, you own everything and you give everything to us. 
Let us happy give to you a tithe of our time, of our talents, and of our treasure back to you. At least one day in seven, and at least 10% of our gross income, whether it is gifts or by work. Let us happily support the work of the gospel ministry, cheerfully do so, recognizing we are also keeping your command and caring about Christ and his church. Lord, we do pray that you will meet our needs as a church. We thank you for the special things that have come. And we're still going to give most of it to outreach and other work. And I'll still be working so that we can see this church grow. But we pray as we invest these things that you would see fit to allow the church to grow and allow those that would happily support and that the ministry uh, could be focused on. And uh, we could even be seeking to bring in another minister uh, for outreach and planting churches, perhaps across the border, elsewhere in the city, uh, supplying support for other churches in our denomination. We pray indeed, Lord, that you would provide, and we pray what you tell us to pray for. We pray for laborers of the harvest. For the harvest is great, the ministers, the laborers are few. Help the churches provide. And we ask you would bless us indeed, Lord, as we trust you in faith according to the Sabbath with Isaiah 58, 13 and 14. And as we would trust you with Proverbs chapter 3 and Malachi chapter 3, that you would bless us more than we can imagine as we would give to you. Elsewhere, you tell us not to test the Lord, but here you tell us to test you and to see that you will more than pass the test and you will bless us incredibly. We know it will not always be uh, necessarily with certain financial things, but it will always be with growth and blessing and things in our heart that matter the most. We pray for your blessing on the ministry, your blessing on the church, blessing on your people. Bless our outreach, Lord, as we give so much of it to try to bring others in and grow your church. We lift it up to you and we trust you. And we thank you, Lord, that we will be in heaven with you, where in Christ we will inherit all things and the entire earth. We praise you and we rejoice in that. And we pray in Jesus' name, your blessing on us to get home safely and have a good rest. And all your people said, Amen. Amen.